Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board-certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. Once again, this is not just a podcast for getting geeky medical information. This is a podcast about wellness, about health. It's a podcast about just meeting people who are good role models and a good influence. And you know, I always tell everyone what's the best part about having my own podcast is I could bring my friends. You guys call them your besties. And one of my besties is going to be our guest today on the show. And um, I'm going to actually kind of embarrass him a little bit before he comes on because, you know, every time I have guests, I'm like, hey, send a little something about themselves because, you know, I want to build up their ego. This guy, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like pulling hair to get him to say something nice about himself. And I know he accomplished a lot. So he like sends me a few lines. So I got to tell, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add a little to his resume that, you know, since being here at, at USC and I'm a critical care doctor. One of my biggest joys in the morning is going to the Bureau ICU and rounding with this dude. Um, and I call him dude because he is cool and friendly and outgoing and he believes in teaching just the way I do. Sometimes I feel like when we're in rounds, me and him are going to let up some cigars, imaginary cigars, and just have a, a banter amongst ourselves. Never is going to watch us, but he always makes sure to incorporate you know, our med students, our residents, you know, I, I, I truly enjoy the fellowship program, the neurocritical care fellowship and interacting there. And he always gets me involved in a good way. So that would that and not to mention he has an amazing family. And that's not the focus here. It's gonna be all medical, but he's got uh, some beautiful kids and a very, very nice wife. And uh, let me read what he gave me. And it's not a lot. So Dr. Benjamin Emanuel, he is the associate professor of neurology. He's the program director of the Neurocritical Care Fellowship. He's the medical director of the Telestroke program here at USC. And uh, he received the resident teaching award twice. He probably deserved it a couple more times, but hey, two is better than none. And that's awesome. He's part of the Telestroke program, which supports 12 community hospitals. And it's a stroke program from San Jose to Orange County, bringing academic stroke expertise to the community. And I do like that word community because that's what this podcast is all about reaching everyone. And he does have a neurocritical care fellowship here. It's UCNS accredited since 2011. And I think he's just selling the fellowship program because he, he wrote down, he takes two fellows a year. So I don't know why he put that there. But with all this being said, uh, Dr. Emmanuel, Ben, how are you doing, bud? Good, Raj. How are you? Dude, I'm doing excellent now that we're going to have a, spend a little more time together after rounds today. <laughs> this is great. You, you ever uh, consider adopting a little Robin Williams beginning there? Good morning. You, you think so? 
don't know. Entertainment. No. <laughs> well, here I'm gonna give you the routine, and we're gonna we're gonna play it off like this. So, this is gonna be a meet and greet for everyone listening today. So, just to let you know that uh, we got a lot of awesome med students. We got a lot of people just interested in wellness. So. Before we jump into the main topic today, which is what I feel talking about cardiovascular disease and stroke, let's talk about you, Ben. So where were you born as a good first question? And where did you go to college? I was born in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 1977. I went oh. to uh, college, University of Pittsburgh, got a BA in economics. Wait, wait, just, oh, wait, wait stop right there. I need to interrupt again. So... Ben, you're a doctor, right? Yeah, yeah. Critical care doctor. So yeah. This goes back to my first question. When did you kind of know when you wanted to be a doctor and how did that translate to, to economics in undergrad? Well, my, my dad was, uh, he's a retired OB guy now. And I think uh, he probably always had like one hand on the wheel. You know, I try and steer or veer away from the uh, road and he'd be like, yeah, I don't think so, man. <laughs> and uh, I tried to imagine myself doing other things, you know, computers. I couldn't really sit there. I wasn't much of a people person. I got along with most people, but, you know, interacting at the corporate level, I don't think was very suited for me. And I always loved science. But, you know, to those who are undergrads right now, um, your college is your one opportunity to study whatever you want because you have to do the prereqs. And so yeah. that's why I did economics. It gave me an opportunity to study something that I was interested in and I could still do all the prereqs for medical school. So did you feel this economic major? Are you, are you good in the stock market? Are you like... No, I still take all my... Got the Dow Jones or something? No, no, <laughs> not at all. I think it just made me more quote-unquote well-rounded. So during college, was there a point somewhere where you're like, I need to be on the more of the doctor track. And was that when you started doing these prereqs and had that pre-med yeah, mentality? I, uh, or was that a, a, an afterthought? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I, I still was very much into medicine. You know, you did the routines in, in, under, in high school, volunteered. I did a ton of bench research and actually loved it in college. It was a lot of fun. Um, so sciences was still very much part of my heart. Um, you know, you just, you have other interests. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with me. And so did you have the talk with dad? You're like, dad, you know, I, I think I'm going to be a professional athlete or a, an artist. And he took the wheel and hard turn and maybe hit you the head once. <laughs> I think one time I was like, I'm thinking about architecture. And he was like, you can't even draw. <laughs> <laughs> now, now it's funny because I mean, me and you are always like, you know, just chuckling all the time. Like you said, you don't like public speaking, all that stuff, but it's ironic, don't you feel that you married a person whose job is PR and getting people to come out of their shells and be the better person who they are? Was she an influence on your personality going forward? Oh, dude, what are you talking about? I like public speaking. I never said that. I thought you just said you're not really into the whole banter and, you know. I just, you know, I don't like, you know, being the limelight. It's two different things. People pay your good money to be in the limelight. <laughs> I talk to the community all the time, you know, education. Uh-huh. It's no problem. You know, I, I, I teach a course at our annual NCS meeting. So I'm not education. I'm just, uh, you know, I, you're, you're a much better speaker than I am. Oh, I'm blushing, Ben. No one can see it because it's only the audio, but I'm blushing a little bit. Yeah, there's probably other reasons no one can see it too, but okay. <laughs> so, so, um, 
Do you miss Pittsburgh, by the way? Were you a big Pittsburgh fan? I went there for, you know, a couple of things and people, it's not a big city, but it's a great city and people take a lot of yeah. sports teams. Are you, are you have like a Penguins jersey underneath there somewhere? We do have Steeler jerseys at home with our last names on them. Um, <laughs> but I, I love Pittsburgh. It's a great town, great people. Um, I do miss it. You know, I've only been back twice since I moved away. Um, you know, I wish I could get back more, but I can't. But it's a great place to raise a family. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is your folks over there still or now? No, my parents moved out here. They came out first. My brother came out first and then my parents a couple years later and then me a couple years after that. Okay. So let's go at, you graduated college. And at that moment, you're like, okay, you're in doctor mode now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and um, how was med school and where did you go to med school? And the two questions I always ask my guests is, can you give me in the first two years, those other painful basic science years, what, what horrible subject just jumps to mind when you think of, Oh, that was a toughie. And can you comment a little bit about the third and fourth years of what was one of your favorite rotations? Oh, wow. Um, so I went to med school, Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine. It was about two, two and a half hours north of Pittsburgh in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, it, uh, the, you know, the friends I made in med school were definitely longer lasting than the friends I made in college. Um, okay. I still talk to a lot of them today. Um, it wasn't, you know, everyone's competitive because once you get to that level, a lot of people are still competitive. But, uh, you know, you spent, I think, all your time and effort trying to just to get to med school that you don't enjoy uh, college as much as most people. So I, I, I think that's why I don't have as many friends from college. Um, but med school, I don't know. I had a lot of fun. Tough subjects, man. I, uh, I think probably like biochemistry, maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, and then I say that because that's probably Raj's most favorite subject. Uh, <laughs> the, the man can still talk about the Krebs cycle at the bedside in the ICU. Um, <laughs> probably the only man I know that could do that. So that was probably yeah. my toughest uh, subject. Um, third and fourth years, you know, honestly, uh, I, I had a great time. It was when you go to smaller schools in, in smaller cities, they, uh, they form relationships with other hospitals around the country. And so I moved around a lot. I was in New York, Pittsburgh, LA, um, Hawaii for a little bit. That was probably my most favorite rotation. Um, I just did, uh, an underserved rotation in Hawaii for six weeks. That's awesome. Yeah. I lived in a hostel. It was, uh, it was awesome. It was literally, I was a block from the beach in Honolulu. It was, uh, so, it was a great- so with, with, you know, with all those things being said, uh, what is, what is one advice you'd give a soon to be med student or a med student right now to embrace or to do differently or to look into during their med school? Um, you know, I think you got to know what caliber candidate you are. Um, and then you got to pick your, you know, you do your one third, one third, one third rule. You, you know, your your wish 10, your, <laughs> your core 10, and then your, your fallback 10. That's kind of what I did. Um, I think once you go on to med school and then you're looking at residency, um, again, it just depends on the caliber uh, candidate you are. But I, I always like picking my cities because you're going to okay. live there for anywhere from three to who knows, six, seven years. So yeah. 
you pick a city that you really like and want to live there, and then you start picking your programs. I love that. Now, you did med school, you know. Um, was there one specific rotation in the third and fourth year you're like, hey, this is the one. This is what I want to be when I grow up, or that changed something, or well, what was the standout rotation? Mm. So I think um, with me, um, I really liked uh, cardiovascular system was really cool in, in med school the first two years. And okay. our clinical instructor for neurology was just so awesome. Um, the way he taught neurology, you know, he would have us draw stick men figures with <laughs> reflex, you know, it was the classic and it made it a lot of fun. And then, um, once I got to clinicals, I, I really, um, enjoyed the ICU. I enjoyed the action. Um, and I really enjoyed, uh, neurology. I did, I think two or two weeks of neurosurgery and that was pretty cool too. Um, so it, 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 I mean, I really, the ICU and neurology just really hit hard for me. Okay. So I just, here's a good question just for everyone knowing as far as applying to neurology. Now, does everyone have to do a transitional year in internal medicine or is that an option or can you go straight into neurology? You know, everyone has to do an internal medicine internship. Some places are categorical, some places are not. Okay. And so in general, what influenced you was medicine. So you didn't feel somewhere that you wanted to be in the OR cracking skull or cracking chest. No, I, I didn't really, even though I enjoyed my general surgery rotation, you know, everyone realizes that what you rotate in is a different experience than what you practice. Well said. So I, um, I knew it wouldn't be the same. And so I really just, uh, I saw medicine and neurology as something I could do long-term. So you did, let's see, I'm prepared, Ben. You did your internal medicine internship in Chicago. Yes. So how do you go from, hey, I'm hanging out with the Steelers and the Penguins to the Windy City? And did you choose that specifically or is that just the way the match blew you over there? I actually, I did a, a neurology elective in Chicago and uh, Chicago is an awesome town. It was a lot of yeah. fun. So I picked cities that I wanted to live in and, uh, you know, I wanted to go to Chicago and I got there for internship. And, uh, where did you internship? Lutheran general hospital. Now it's a community hospital, right? Yeah. It was a, uh, level one trauma center in the community. Now, was that influence you because you did say you want to do things for the community. Is that why you wanted to go there? Uh, I went to a Lutheran general. I think, I. I, it was, uh, you know, whenever you're looking at spots for internal medicine, um, you're looking at one year spots. So most of them are going to be in the community versus academic. Most academic spots are going to be categorical. Okay. So let me ask you this, because, you know, I, I stayed the route of internal medicine. Was there a moment you're like, you know what, maybe I'll kind of not do just the brain, but stick with the body and just stick within your uh, internal medicine. Some people do that. So did you have a good internship year? I had an amazing internship year. It was so good that I actually almost stayed in internal medicine. I can see that. I totally can see that. I totally (laughs) almost did. And it was to do GI. Shut up. I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming. I was (laughs) obsessed with those little green stool cards that, you know, you would take. (laughs) I, I always had a pack in my pocket. And so there, there was something about me and GI. Oh Um, man. 
I even had a separate GI book and internship, you know, everything else was always just a general internal medicine book, but for GI, yeah. it's completely separate GI book. Um, <laughs> but my dad, again, hand on the wheel, was like, <laughs> you know, he chose neurology for a reason. Everything gets monotonous. He's like, you know, you get really good at something. You're going to know it really well. And that's just the, you know, nature of being an expert. Yep. And so you chose in the beginning. He's like, if I were you, I wouldn't deviate. I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> that's funny i mean now right now i'm looking at you i'm trying to imagine you with like a, a like an egd in your hand you know what I mean? like yeah. you know raj i just did the rcp you know yeah, in my face. <laughs> no no that's cool i'm glad i got to learn something about you so during the internship year um did you know already that you're going to be matching to do neurology in Georgetown or did you have to apply again after the match, after the, the categorical year? You, you apply, um, you match the same year. So, you know, like year in advance where you're going. Okay. To okay. So you knew you were going to go to, and I'm impressed. I got to tell you, I didn't know you went to Georgetown. That, that is an awesome, awesome place. My, my wife, she's from DC. So I actually had the opportunity to go to Georgetown to give some, some step one lectures when I was working for some, for Kaplan, some other board companies, they're smart students, man. They're smart residents and attendings. Good for you. And, and, um, going there, you know, was it a little intimidating? How, how was Georgetown for neurology your first year? You know, it was, uh, it was an awesome program, you know, it was a great group of residents from, you know, the juniors all the way to the chiefs. Um, everyone was really supportive. Everyone was a team player. Um, the program director and the chair uh, were just amazing teachers. Everyone was a really good teacher. Um, it, it, it was just a great environment to be in. So, you know, I got to ask, you know, when, when you think of the stereotype neurologist, I mean, don't lie. Did you have a little black bag with the hole uh, that you carried around, you know, with the, with, with <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I have nothing. I, I know uh, I'm an open book here. You know, uh, I, I did not have a bag. I carried everything in the pockets of my white coat. Yeah. You know, you know, in, in our day, Ben, I don't know why I'm going a little tangent here. Do you remember we used to stuff our pockets with all these little like pharmacopoeia books and everything? Dude, I had all that stuff. I had, it. <laughs> I even, I even, I had, the safety pins attached to my white coat, you know, cause oh, you really? to the bedside and you just yeah. pain. Yeah. I had that. <laughs> and, you know, but you know, these new people, the, the younger folks out there, and I love all the young people listening to my podcast. It's all about this, right? It's all about the phone. Everything's on. Yeah. You know what I mean? yeah. 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 There's no like stuffed Washington manual. Do you remember the Washington manual? Yeah. <laughs> In our pockets, you know, um, is so that old, uh, remember that old punk song? Um, Which one? It's an old punk song by uh, Bad Religion. Um, um, uh, I'm, I'm, wait, wait, wait. I mean, you got a lot of songs, but I'm trying to think of one that relates to stuffed pockets and. and you no, know, it's like they, they can't they they can't read, but they can play with technology. Oh, 21st century digital 21st boy. Century digital boy. You yeah. owe me on that podcast. People listening, yeah. that's Dr. Raj calling that one. Yeah. I don't know how to read, but I got a lot of toys. A lot of toys. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so let me ask, uh, for everyone listening. So Ben, if, if we have someone who wants to go in neurology, I mean, wh what type of people, what interests you the most about it? Was it the, the, the puzzling, the physical exam, the differential or what people would be, you think would be, Hey, maybe you should think about going to neurology for your, for your profession. I liked, I liked neurology for 
two reasons, personally. It was one, you could make a diagnosis pretty close without doing a lot of tests. You know, I know neurologists, it's all EEG, EMG, MRI, blah, 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 blah. But you could listen, if you just listen to a really good history, you could get 90% of your differential down. And then you could do a focused exam and you would know what's going on. And really your testing was most of the time to confirm what you already think is going on. Um, the second reason was to me, I've always felt like they would call the neurologist whenever they couldn't really figure out what's going on. You know, it's like yeah. a shaman that was going to come in and just figure out what was wrong. Um, so I, to me, I think that's why I like neurology. You know, um, a couple of stereotype questions I want to ask you. I love stereotypes. Um, this happened to me, you know, I was, uh, either a med student or I was like a first year intern and, uh, it's always intimidating when you have to do a neuro exam in front of the neurologist, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Of course, if you're low on the totem pole, they, they, they throw you under the bus, you know? And I remember it was time to, uh, elicit some reflexes, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I got to tell you, everyone listening, I didn't, I didn't have a reflex hammer on me. You know what I mean? I don't know if you're always good about having one or I didn't have one. So I do what most crafty medical students do or, or interns. I, I use my stethoscope and I, and I did it. And I, I think I kind of upset the neurologist a little bit. Why are you all just so upset when we don't have the hammer and we just want to use our stethoscope? Why do you give us a hard time? Well, would you be mad at me if I didn't have a stethoscope and I used your ear? Uh, wow. Well, touche. Okay. I mean, I, I set myself up for that, but you know, he, he could have been a little nicer to me, you know, and I'm hey man, <laughs> no, you open Pandora's box, not me. <laughs> um, so that was one. And, and, and two, now that you're the, the attending, now that you're the attending, uh, and, and I, we've seen this, you have your, 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 your trainees going there and do a, a neuro exam. It's tough. Why, why is the neuro exam so tough? What is the hardest part in learning a good neuro exam? Is, it, is, it, is there some memorizing in there that makes it hard? Is it doubting yourself? Is there, you know what I mean? What makes a good neuro exam so tough to do? I think, um, you know, you have to be, it's so many pieces and you want to be thorough and it's attention to detail. And I think often a lot of pe- people forget that you need to do it the same way every time head to toe. That way you never miss anything. And, you know, sometimes we see something like a little facial droop and we disregard it or a little ptosis and we disregard it. And we, we just, and we think it's real. We're not sure if it's real and we're afraid to call it if it's real. But I think, you know, even if you see subtleties here and there, all the subtleties will add up to a diagnosis. So just because you see one subtlety, it could be a subtlety that's not real. But if you see a bunch of little subtleties, those could all be real. No, well said. So during neuro the residency, what diseases kind of did you gravitate towards? Are you kind of a, a you want know, more seizures and epilepsy? Were neuromuscular? What, what kind of drove uh, your interest in neurology? Um, I was, you know, I liked um, the action, so I liked stroke. Um, okay. I was, stroke was very um, front loaded. Um, and I hadn't really had any neuro ICU experience. I thought like MS demyelinating disease was very cool because I thought neuroimmunology was really cool. I thought it had a very promising future. Um, yep. At the time, Tysabri was the first like really cool, true neuromodulator coming out. Um, and what is that drug for? Is that for MS? Because I don't know. MS, yeah. Okay. MS. Okay. I thought about neuro oncology because it kept me into medicine. 
Um, sure. But then, you know, a lot of your patients don't do well at all. Yeah. And then, um, I, you know, I did a month in the pulmonary unit again as elective. And I was like, you know what? I just, I love the unit and I, I liked the action and the procedural aspect and that keeps me into medicine. And so it just made a lot of sense for me. So, you know, going into neurocritical care now at that time, was that a kind of a, a, a hot thing and in fat thing for a neurologist to go into critical care? Were you kind of one of the more trendsetters by doing that or, you know, how did you end up saying that you had a great experience in the ICU? This is how I see spending the rest of my life in the unit, which is awesome. That's where you deserve to be. But what was really said, this is what I want to do. Um, you know, it wasn't neuro ICU had been around since the late seventies, maybe. And mm-hmm. when I started the fellowships, there weren't a lot and it was so few that it was, you were still just interviewing and getting hired. There was no match yet. Okay. Um, and you know, I got a spot two years before I was even done or 18 months before I was done. So there were some people doing it, but, uh, not a ton, you know, there were maybe, half a dozen really big programs and then everyone else, you know, were distant seconds and thirds. Um, but to me, it just, uh, I don't know. It, it still had a bright future. Uh, you know, neuromonitoring was very early on. There were only a couple programs doing it. Um, you know, there were a younger generations of neurosurgeons who were coming out that enjoyed having the intensives, neurointensivists at the bedside so they could be focused on the operating room. Yeah. So um, the future looked pretty bright for neuroICU. And I know where you went. I don't, I don't know if I should announce it on the podcast because we're, we're me and you are, are fellow Trojans, but at this point in your life, you were a Bruin. You went to UCLA. Now, did, did, did it, was it the program that drove you there or should I just go back to our interview and say, was it Southern California and the beautiful weather? What brought you there? Um, no, actually I had, you know, I was living in DC. So of course, you know, I, I looked at the East coast programs like Hopkins. Um, some friends told me to check out New York. Um, I spent some time at UCSF. Uh, what I liked about the UCLA program is that it's uh, the program is housed in the department of neurosurgery. Um, okay. You know, you've got, different camaraderie there, different privileging there. Um, it was really good, intense training. It's, it's a neurotrauma unit. So you see all the vascular, you see all the neurotrauma, you see all the zebras. Um, yeah, my family was here. So it, it made it a great opportunity to do both and see everyone. Um, you know, and I, I don't regret a day. Now, no, and I, I'm, you definitely chose wisely. And let me ask about this. So when I, get a chance to hang out with you in the ICU. And I see some of our mutual, you know, my mutual fellows now becoming critical care fellows. One thing you do at the bedside is something called, you know, this EVD, this these ventricular drains that you just put, you know, through landmarks and literally everyone, uh, you know, Dr. Manuel is like drilling in the, through the skull to place a monitor to see how much the brain pressure is. I mean, how was the first time you did your own one? No one's when you had just, you know, no one around. Is it stressful? Do you ever take a moment to say, oh, my God, I'm drilling in this person's skull and I don't need a supervisor to do this. I mean, is it is it looks stressful to me? You know what I mean? So how was your first time doing that when no one's like slapping you on the wrist or we're telling you where your landmarks are? <laughs> 
Thank you. Okay, so let's get a couple of things straight. Okay, <laughs> thanks for giving me the credit, but in the end, you know, I always have a neurosurgery resident to back me up, um, and they were a great group of um, residents. But it was, yeah, you know, the first time you're doing it, it uh, it is a little nerve wracking, but. I got to be honest, man, it's mm-hmm. no different than trying to get an airway. You know, if you're if so nice, airway, you're so, so nice. It was, to be, you know, now that we have uh, video assisted laryngoscopy, it's completely different now. Of but course. That, there were plenty of times when I was trying to get an airway and it was really hard and I'd have to call anesthesia. Um, so I, I think, you know, in hindsight, People talk about the EVD, but I, it's just like any procedure where if you can't get it, it's a life and death situation. Yeah. No. And, you know, because we have a, a mutual fellow who one year is reading some sleep studies. The next thing I know, I walk by the room. He's like drilling in his guy's skull. And I'm like, wait a minute. You, there's the learning curve just jumped up pretty quick. And I'm just thinking about just you and me. You know what I mean? I am very, very fortunate. My scope of practice isn't going to someone's brain, but you know, um, I don't, I just like to paint a picture that if, if, you know, if neurology and doing critical care medicine intrigues you, if anyone listening today, maybe they should be like you, maybe they should try out this fellowship, you know? Uh, I think it's a great idea. I think critical care in general is a great field, no matter what you want to do, you know, do pulmonary, critical care or cardiac critical care, trauma, SICU. I mean, they're all great experiences. All right. So I'm going to take, I'm going to use your uh, father's analogy and grab the steering wheel a little bit. (laughs) um, I'm going, I'm going to turn it a little bit then. So, you know, I always like to incorporate some medicine in all my podcasts, you know, and, and today I now bless you as the official stroke neurologist because, um, you know, I think what motivated me this, Ben, and maybe you could chime in a little bit, is that, you know, during COVID, you know, there's always been a theme, which is, where did all the heart attacks go? Where did all the strokes go? You know what I mean? Like, it, we had a different focus, and people were scared to come in. People were scared to, to go to their doctor, scared to go to the emergency department for evaluation of life-threatening things, you know? And, you know, now that you know, knock on wood, you know, we're we're starting to go in the right direction. You know, I have a lot of people who are now focusing back on prevention and I want to talk about stroke today. So Ben, these are easy questions for you. So please forgive me. (laughs) Hey, can you just, in your own words, just tell me, I mean, what is a stroke? Uh, A stroke is, you know, in a layman's terms, when people talk about stroke, they're talking about ischemic or, or a hemorrhagic stroke. Most of the time, when you talk about stroke, we're talking about ischemic stroke. Okay. And it is a blood clot in the brain. Um, it, it, either it's embolic, comes from another part of the body, or it's thrombotic, where you have vasoclusive disease of a small artery, and it causes ischemic symptoms to a part of the brain. And, and the, the alternative one would be just the hemorrhagic, which I just assume it's just, just bleeding in the brain itself. Right. right. It's just uh, interparenchymal hemorrhage, where you just have a... Uh, a rupture of a small artery, um, usually in the deep white matter. So for today, I think the best one is talk about the one we worry about the most, when we see the most. So we're going to be talking about these, um, this uh, ischemic strokes, correct? Yes, ischemic strokes. Okay. So let me ask you this. So what really happens when, uh, you know what I mean, when you have a stroke itself? Is it kind of like does something break off and 
and, and, and block that artery up there? Is that the, the physiology behind it? Most strokes, no, actually most strokes are what we call small vessel strokes. Okay. So they're small penetrating arteries into areas like the basal ganglia, the pons, um, it could be the cerebellum, the thalamus. And so that's most strokes or small vessel strokes. Primarily caused by hypertension. Um, You can also have diabetes, high cholesterol. Uh, The second form of stroke would be an embolic stroke. And those can come either from other large arteries like the carotid. Um, It could even be intracranial atherosclerosis. Uh, It could be cardiac. It could be aortic arch. So if someone were to have a stroke, and I guess this is one of the most important things is what are those symptoms? What should people look for? What are the signs, you know, if, if someone has a stroke, if you're giving it a talk to the general public, what, what do you try to tell them to be aware of? I think, you know, the most common analogy we like to use or is uh, the be fast. So you remember the FAST. So talking about face, arm, speech and time. And okay. those are, there are other symptoms like you can have numbness or you can have problems thinking or problems walking. But if you just really remember the be fast, um, that's the easiest way to remember you might be having a stroke. I'm sure there's a lot of mimickers out there. So is the take home message that if you don't know, you're not sure, just, hey, call the right people, seek medical attention because, I mean, stroke can definitely present in not the most obvious ways. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, totally. I mean, if you if you think you're having a stroke, you or someone close to you should just call 911 as soon as possible, because the sooner you get to the hospital, the sooner we can treat you and the more likely you will do better. And, you know, one, you know, one thing I heard from the patient side of things and that, you know, I get a chance to meet a lot of the patients because I rotate in your ICU is that they didn't even realize they were having strokes sometimes, you know, and how 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 is it possible that a patient, and if I use your, you know, this acronym, how did they not know they're not moving their arm or their speech is not right? Or, you know what I mean? How did they not know? So I think it's, it's twofold. Um, the first is what type of stroke are you having? Okay. You know, if you're having a non-dominant hemisphere parietal stroke, you could have something called neglect and you don't uh-huh. realize that, you, you know, the contralateral side of the body, the right side of the body doesn't work or works, but doesn't work that well. Um, Sometimes if you have a facial droop, if you don't look at yourself in the mirror or someone look at you, you don't, you might not notice you're having a facial droop. Or if maybe you had dysarthria or aphasia, if you're not trying to talk, you might not realize that you have a problem. Um, And unfortunately, I think the second aspect is it's just an education um, of, uh, you know, the lay public in that these are symptoms that are probably not going to go away. Sometimes someone has stroke symptoms and they ignore them um, and they diminish them and they think they're going to go away. But the really what they need to do is go to the hospital as fast as possible. So, I mean, reading into that a little bit, I mean, if someone's by themselves or not with their wife or husband or some kids, they could have a stroke and they may not even know it and be losing precious time off the clock. Is that, is that that's right? Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Oh my God. Um, so let's go back to the acute part of it because I know that you see people in the ICU, but so is the take home message. If you think someone's having a stroke, the first thing to do is, is just pick up that phone, call 911, get, get medical attention right away. Is that the first thing to do? 
That's the first thing to do. And, and, why, and why, why is it so important to get to the hospital as quickly as possible? Because we always say this. So why is time so important, Ben? So fortunately, you, you know, with uh, medical advancement, stroke care in the acute setting has um, really progressed over the last probably 20, 25 years. And initially it started um, with using TPA, uh, the clot buster, Alteplase, to basically essentially break up a clot whenever you're having an acute stroke. And this window was really only in the first three hours. And then um, more recently in the last 10 years, we've been able to expand that window out to four and a half. Wow. And then even more recently, you know, with advanced imaging and advanced endovascular techniques, we've been able to expand that window for large vessel uh, stroke out to 24 hours. So that's why, you know, you want to get to the hospital as soon as possible because these treatments can only be used in the first couple hours to the first day. So let me ask you a med student question right here, because this is a great one. So let's say... Um, someone's having a stroke, they're not in the hospital just yet. And let's say their son or daughter is going to med school. Is it important when someone has stroke-like symptoms, even without imaging yet to give that person an aspirin, a baby aspirin? Cause there's this rumor out there, give a baby aspirin. Well, how do you respond to that? I respond to that is that, you know, are you a gambling man or not? <laughs> <laughs> Now, the reason when someone comes to the hospital, the reason we do the CAT scan or the CT of the head is not to confirm stroke, but to rule out hemorrhage. Okay. So is it statistically more likely that it's an ischemic stroke? Yes. It's statistically more likely it's an ischemic stroke. So if you want to gamble and roll the dice, I do not suggest it. Okay. You should not be taking aspirin. You should be going to the ER first and determine what type of stroke this is. Now, this is important, Ben, because now we know and you know when we round, there are some people who, you know, their loved one's a nurse or someone in the medical profession. Yeah. Stroke, boom, aspirin right aspirin. Now. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so we're going to say that if you're a gambling man or woman, go go ahead, but we don't suggest it at all. Get, get don't recommend it whatsoever. Okay. It so let me ask you this. So indicated in the first hours until you have a CAT scan, you do not do that. And let's say, okay, you get the CAT scan. Let's say they're not a gambling person. They get the CAT scan. It's, it's not a, uh, a hemorrhagic stroke. Yeah. You get the aspirin at that point or, or just getting aspirin kind of make the TPA, this clot buster you're talking about a little more risky. Um, no, it's it, well, if you come in within the window, then um, you totally will get TPA if you're a candidate. Um, and that doesn't matter if you took the aspirin or not, correct? It doesn't matter. You could be on aspirin. You could be on dual antiplatelet. You can be on another antiplatelet. You can totally still get um, a TPA. Now, now you're getting me all excited, Ben. So let's say I'm making up these things as we go along. That's what I do. Okay. So, we're, so it's okay to give, if you're on two antiplatelet drugs, like you're mentioning, we do that for people who have stents in the heart and some other couple of reasons. What about they're on a, what we refer to as a, a blood thinner? And for my medical students out there, if they're on something like a, a Coumadin or these new things called DOAX, direct oral anticoagulants, what are those things like Eliquest and Spiralto? Does that take them off the getting the TPA or not really? Or Well, it depends on the uh, where you are in the time window. If you're in the first three hours of the time window and you're on something like warfarin, Yep. antagonist, you can um, get TPA as long as your INR is less than 1.7. Okay. 
If okay. you're on one of the newer agents, one of the DOACs, it's not recommended that you get the TPA. Okay. Now, I want to expand a little bit more because I'm getting, I'm getting really into this now. So patient comes in as they should. They, they thought it was stroke. Time is of the essence. Uh, 911 to go in. So it is important. I think, you know, Ben, when me and you were in med school, it was three hours. That was like the board answer. It's, yeah. see that it's four and a half now. That's a big take home message. And in our time, the only thing that I ordered when they came into the ER, the emergency department was a non-con of the head. Now, because I work with you, I know how we do things, you know, um, you're ordering more than just a non-contrast CT of the head. You're ordering all this other imaging at the same time. Can you explain to some of the med students why you order, what else do you order in imaging and why? Yeah, what we do nowadays is we're ordering, in addition to the non-con CT of the head, we're also ordering a CT angiogram of the head and neck. Um, because we want to know, is this a large vessel occlusion? Um, if it is, is it an occlusion that we can treat? Uh, is there another cause for the stroke, like uh, maybe intracranial atherosclerosis? Does this patient maybe have carotid artery stenosis that we can treat? Do they have, um, you know, maybe carotid artery dissection, which is a common cause in young people? Or maybe they have a vertebral artery occlusion or dissection. So, it, you know, in the past, yes, it all, only used to be a non-con CT, but now our treatments have changed so much um, now that we know there are different causes of stroke where we treat them differently. Now, and also, and forgive me if I'm wrong, you guys also order something called perfusion imaging at the same time. Why would you do that? So the, um, you know, the technology in perfusion imaging has uh, dramatically moved forward and it's almost like a artificial intelligence technology. And it, it calculates, it looks at different variables um, in regards to how blood is flowing into the brain. And it can tell us how much of the stroke we can't fix and how much of the stroke we can fix, what we call the penumbra. And this advanced imaging, it, it gives us... Um, you know, it tells us how much stroke we can treat because if you have a large area of penumbra, then you can have an endovascular neurosurgeon go in and do a thrombectomy to remove the clot. Wow. So let me ask you this. So is every emergency department, every hospital ordering that type of imaging when someone comes in, or do you need to go to a stroke center to get that? Um, every, ho not every, but a lot of hospitals um, let me actually back it up even more for you. Back it up, back it up. So what they've done over the last maybe 15 years or so, maybe close to 20 years, is that they've tried to delineate hospitals into primary stroke centers and comprehensive or thrombectomy centers. Just like they do for heart attacks, you have STEMI centers. Sure. And so the primary stroke centers are your little um, spoke hospitals that are really good in giving TPA because most strokes are small vessel strokes. And so most people, all they need is TPA, but there are a subset of hospitals, larger centers that specialize in doing thrombectomies and other endovascular procedures. And, you know, more hospitals are doing CTAs to find if this person does have an occlusion. And then if you do, if that hospital happens to do them, you'll stay there and get it done. And if they don't okay. do them, then you'll get transferred to another hospital. So let me ask you this. I mean, um, someone comes in with a stroke. You give TPA. Now, sometimes, you know, TV shows, I remember I was watching, remember ER, Ben, were you a big ER fan in the day? Dude, loved ER. <laughs> 
So I remember there was one episode, someone came in with a stroke and, you know, they had the makeup job to look at the facial droop and they pushed a little TPA. And by the end of the episode, it was gone. I mean, does, does TPA work that good? And <laughs> can you explain so that? The about TPA? data is that it, it works a few months down the road. Okay. Okay. People who got the TPA versus didn't get the TPA did better overall a few months down the road. Now, have I seen people in the first 24 hours get better after TPA? Yes. Some people okay. get better. Because, okay. you know, comparing it from the original NINS trial, we're giving TPA faster than we used to. And so mm-hmm. that's the key is that the faster you give it, the better you do. And I don't know why I'm getting so dorky. Forgive me, podcast listeners. When you give that TPA, is it over what period of time? You give uh, 10% bolus over one minute and the remaining 90% infusion over one hour. Wow. So if you're, you're getting it, you're getting it when it comes in. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that if it's a large vessel stroke, did I hear you correctly? Cause you're, you're throwing out a lot of pearls. I love it. Up to 24 hours. Yeah. Up to 24 hours. The trials go up to 24 hours. Um, did you want my personal opinion or do you want me to talk about what the trials are? So I'm going to go, I'm, you get to darken me, man. So I thought that when we talk about the middle cerebral artery, yes, if you were to able to do some kind of interventional procedure, the yeah. number is now six hours. Then for just TPA or in general, 4.5, I, enlighten me. Tell me, well, where did the 24 come in? Who gets the 24 hours? You know what I mean? Well, that's the not TPA, right? That's 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 interventional, correct? Yes. Um, the twenty-four hours was created to, you know, put a, a time window to to it. But essentially, if if someone has favorable imaging, if the perfusion is favorable, theoretically, the the window, you know, you could expand it out to thirty-six, forty-eight. I mean, if if someone still has symptoms out to thirty-six, forty-eight, you start to have to ask yourself, is this a chronic occlusion? But we've treated people at our center um, at 36 hours out. So okay. it's, the 24 becomes more of a, a, an ED policy. But as far as what we do, you know, that's how you improve stroke care is by pushing the window. Um, and that's essentially what happened with a, a lot of the initial exclusion criteria with TPA. We were able to push the window and expand upon the inclusion criteria. So you mentioned your opinion. Is, so do you believe in this criteria? Do you believe like, hey, get all the imaging, your window is, is a full day, a full 24 hours that can make a difference long-term. Do you believe that? I do. I think that all primary stroke centers should move to um, vessel imaging. Not all stroke centers have the perfusion imaging available, but I think all stroke centers should at least do the vessel imaging on top of the CT scan. That's amazing. All right. So, I mean, I could go more questions on this one, but you know, for the general public, I think we now scared them about stroke a little bit. So I apologize. But so what are those risk factors, Ben? So for everyone listening, what should they what should they focus on? For stroke risk factors? Yeah, of course. Well, number one, number two, and number three are hypertension, hypertension, and hypertension. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's as when the medical students come on and, you know, I, I pimp them and I say, what's the most common cause of stroke? And they say hypertension, and then we run through every other cardiovascular um, disease or organ. You say most common cause of, you know, kidney disease, it's hypertension. Most common cause of coronary disease is hypertension. It's all connected. Um, and then after that, you have um, obesity, smoking, um, hyperlipidemia, you have diabetes. But by far, um, it's high blood pressure. 
Now, when you're seeing patients, I know you have your own clinic. I mean, do you kind of, uh, when you see that blood pressure, not at, at goal, depending upon, I know there's so many different guidelines nowadays, yeah. all to the primary to kind of take care of that. Or you just kind of intervene right there because you know, it's such an important thing when we talk about cardiovascular health. Yeah, it really depends on how uh, complex the patient is. If they have a history of a, a cabbage, uh, coronary artery disease, and on multiple meds, and they also have a cardiologist, I'll often leave it to the cardiologist to make the decision. If it's someone who just purely has high blood pressure and nothing else, I'll usually take it upon myself to change the meds around. You know, I even tell a story from today, from me and you rounded today together. And uh, I mean, you mentioned diabetes. Remember, we had a sad case. You know what I mean? Uh, someone came in, they didn't even know they were diabetic. And this yeah. an A1C, what was it, like almost 13? Yeah, almost 13. Yeah. That's like double the normal value, you know? Yeah, it's a lot. So does neurologists, I know your neurocritical care, once again, that's your jam, but I mean, when it comes to some, and I hate using the word routine lab should not be routine. I mean, are you good about ordering fasting lipid panels and A1Cs? Is, you take that upon yourself as a neurologist or is that once again, you know, this is why you need to pick a great, you know, quarterback primary care doctor. Uh, yeah. Usually when they come to me, someone has already done that in the clinic. Um, okay. if they haven't, then I take it upon myself to order it. And now what about this? So we've got the risk factors and I know I like what you were saying, you know, and the sad thing is there are definitely modifiable, non-modifiable risk factors. I'm sure family history goes in there, yeah. goes in there and everything, but definitely you want to pick out those modifiable ones. So what about long-term, you know, let's say not the ones that, you know, make us kind of sad and they're not going in the right direction, but for most people with stroke, you know what I mean? Talking about the ischemic strokes, uh, what, what's going to be besides their lifestyle, is it going to be aspirin and antiplatelets? Is that the usual, um, you know, preventive care? And you said there was some new data about secondary preventions. What are those treatments that you have and what are those things that will lead into secondary prevention? Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be multifaceted, really. You're talking about, I mean, from the medication side, you're talking about a, st a statin for cholesterol. You're talking about an antihypertensive for high blood pressure. If you're diabetic, you're going to treat that. Um, you know, they're encouraging exercise 10 minutes, four times a week or 20 minutes, twice a week, uh, low salt diet, Mediterranean diets. Um, you know, what about the antiplatelet after you have a stroke? Is it granted? It's not a fib atrial fibrillation for everyone. Is it just being on an aspirin? If that's the first stroke you had, you know, do you, do you go on an aspirin? So they're, they're currently recommending, you know, aspirin for everyone. And if you have a large vessel intracranial atherosclerosis, um, dual antiplatelet is a good idea for nine. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. And then, I mean, I guess the hardest part is always going to be, you know, uh, you know, prognosis. I know it, it, it's so tough because, you know, on one side, it really depends on how bad is the stroke and where you go. But, I mean, from your experience being in the ICU, seeing the sickest of the sick in the neuro ICU, have you seen some really good cases where you're like, you know what, this person's not going to fare well and they got a lot of meaningful response back? Yeah, we've had some great cases. One that comes to mind is, I mean, it's, it just goes to show you that you shouldn't let age be a factor in a decision is we, we had someone in their eighties who 
was using a uh, walker and she had a right M1 occlusion and our team went in and they uh, were able to get the clot out and she came out with like a stroke scale of one just for a facial droop after a couple of days. Oh, explain to everyone the stroke scale. Explain to everyone the stroke scale. So the, the <laughs> stroke scale, so medicine loves scales. Yeah, um, they do. <laughs> scales for everything. We have scales for the scales. You know, we have abbreviated <laughs> scales for the real scales if we're too lazy to do the real scale. <laughs> so the stroke scale um, was invented to look at large hemispheric symptoms, either in the right MCA or left MCA distribution. And so you go through and you um, grade different aspects of the exam, your level of consciousness, ability to answer questions, um, your facial droops, slurred speech, um, uh, visual field loss, uh, gaze preference, motor weakness in the arm and leg, sensory, you look at aphasia, and everything gets a point scale. And so, of course, the higher the, the scale, the more deficits you have. And she came in in the high teens initially, uh, which is a pretty disabling stroke, and she ended up leaving with like a one or a two. Wow. No, that's impressive. That's impressive. So, I would say kind of like wrapping things up. So I want to make sure that we get some take home messages here. So of course, I mean, number one, be very aware of what stroke symptoms are. I mean, there are some classic ones, but they sometimes can go under the radar and it's hard to even notice them. Uh, what can people listening to this, the general public, what can they do to reduce their risk of stroke? Anything you want to tell them to do at this point, now that the pandemic's getting better, what can they do? Exercise. <laughs> Number one thing, swear to, I mean, it doesn't, it, it, the exercise goes so far more than just improving cardiovascular fitness, reducing your incidence of stroke, reducing, um, you know, it improves wellness. It, it improves your own well-being. I mean, exercise just goes so far. So are, are you going to be more specific in the sense that sometimes I talk to some cardiologists, right? Well, I need 20 to 30 minutes of moderate intensity. Are you just kind of like, are you cool the way you always are in rounds? Like just get out and move or do you have some specific recommendation? It's, you know, I, 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 yes. If you want to say 20 to 30 minutes, three to four times a week, that's fine. But it's so mm-hmm. with so many people, you give them uh, a goal and you often fail. I think you, you need to just start off by getting out there and starting to exercise. And then you see the benefits of it. You feel good. And then you start to push yourself a little more after that. All right. No, I like that. I like that. So everyone, you don't have to buy a Peloton. You can just go outside and, and move. What else? I mean, what else besides doing something? I love exercise. And I got to tell you, Ben, you know, you know, after when I get home tonight, I have a little, um, was it called elliptical? I just love yeah. it. And you're right. It, it's stress relief. It, you have lost some weight better recently. at night. You have lost some weight recently. I've noticed like in a good way. Right. Not like in a good a, way. Yeah. Like a yeah. Way or anything. Okay. Thank you. We're getting ready for the beach. Aren't you? It's summertime. Now. Oh, you know, I got to tell you, if you ever see me at the beach, Ben, I'm one of those weirdos that got the umbrella. You know what I mean? Man, I, I got a nice tan. Okay. Right. I have a swim shirt too. I wear a swim shirt. It's fine. I wear oh, a hat. Serious? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, no, Candace is all about it. You know, she's she's all under the skin and keeping herself healthy. No, but in addition to the exercise, mm-hmm. see your doctor. You know, they'll check your blood pressure. They'll check you for diabetes. They'll check your cholesterol. You know, we're here to help. We're not here to be a pest. No, no, hundred percent. And Ben, I gotta tell you, I told you. Did you, did you have a good time talking to me on, on your podcast? No one can see how much fun we're having. 
This is a blast. I got to tell you, and you know what, everyone? I just rounded with Ben this morning. I may go back and do some follow-up rounds with him <laughs> afterwards. But like I said, this is the best part. I get to really interact with awesome people. But to embarrass you one more time, Ben, uh, everyone listening here, he truly is an amazing doctor. He's fun. He's down to earth. Is it okay if I invite you back again for another Neuro Talk? Is that going to be okay? Sure, man. We can talk about whatever you want. I like that. I like dealer's choice. I love it. All right, Ben, thank you so much. This has been the Dr. Raj podcast, and I'm going to see everyone again in two weeks. Bye, Ben. See you, Raj. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.